You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Put yourself in these shoes. Several months ago, you begin preparing uh, to go on a mission trip to a third world country. So you start going, okay, do I have my passport? Do I have all the shots needed? Do I have the $1,600 in place that's, that's going to take me to do this? Do I have off from work? Some of you maybe have, would have procrastinated and waited for like last minute and be like, hey boss, I'm not coming in next week. But that takes some planning, right? So you're going through all these planning months in advance of going, can I make this trip happen? You're, you're, you're probably a little stressed about the COVID stuff because when we booked this trip, there was a, you got a test negative to come back to the States, and so you're going, okay, what happens if I get going and uh, I have COVID positive, which that didn't happen to anybody on our team, right? Uh, thankfully, by God's grace, they lift uh, that ban, and so about a month out, you start breathing a little easier because you're like, oh, I can come home. You get all your stuff together, your heavy bags, you, you go to international uh, airlines and all the travel and stress and the anxiety that comes with that day. You get on the plane, you fly to Guatemala, you land, and this is your first time uh, probably in a different country, most definitely in a third world country. And you begin to look outside and you go, I am not in Kansas anymore. Right, And you, you drive in a 12-passenger van with your vehicle in, uh, or with your luggage in a truck next to you that you have to tie down with ropes, not because the, the luggage may jump out of your truck, but because when you stop at a red light, somebody may take your luggage out of the back of that truck. And so you drive an hour to this village in Magdalena, Guatemala. And when you get to this village, what you notice is that their life is nothing like your life. Like these people are, are living in a vast majority of the people in this city of Magdalena. 10,000 people live there. They are living in houses with dirt floors. Many of their roofs are tarps that are held up by a few pieces of string and a pole so that the water will run down. They do have what's called lamina, some of them, so that's a metal roof, but it's been rusted or installed improperly, and so constantly there's water dripping in your house. And you go on this first home visit in which you pack food for, and you, you take them this little bag of food that's got a couple pounds of rice and sugar and beans and all the other basic necessities that they eat in this country, and you're blown away by truthfully the poverty of, of what you're looking around. Like, you, you're, you're really just kind of like, wow. And then the next day, you wake up and you go to church. And you, you go to this church service, and you're not really sure what to expect, but you walk in and you hear that they're going to be talking about missions. Now, here you are on a mission trip in Guatemala, to a country, talking that morning, these people are going to be talking about missions, and they begin to preach a sermon that makes you feel about this big, because here's what they do. They start unpacking the biblical call of each and every single Christian believer, not pastor, not church planter, not special missionary, but every single Christian to go with the gospel. And then it gets even better. They begin to discuss how they have sent missionaries to another country. And now you're feeling really small to a degree. You're just going, hold on, I'm sitting here and, and in my flesh, 
I, I, I can't but help focus on kind of the poverty that I find myself in. And here are these impoverished people who don't always know when their next meal is coming, who shower unlike any shower that you've ever taken even at a campsite. And they're going, hey, we can take stuff along with the gospel to these other people in a different country who are in need. Now, maybe it was just me that felt terrible, but I think everybody else on the team just in that moment goes, wow, like this is absolutely huge. And then here comes the big part, the fun part in church. They pass the offering plate. Now, you're in a third world country. You've just given food to a family. That same family that you gave food to because they didn't have food, when the, pa- when the bucket is passed in front of them, you know what they did? They put money in it. They put money in it. And I, I'm sitting there, and I'm just taking all of this in, and I'm hearing their hearts, and I'm going, wow. Am I content with what God's given me? Because that's a powerful message to see people who are living in a, in a very different world than me. Now, it's their normal, so let's not get wrapped up into the whole consumeristic thing on the idea of, you know, they need to live up to our standards or vice versa. This is their normal, but there's, there's this heart-wrenching gut moment that just goes, man, they, to a degree, do they get something more than me? In 1967, Bob Dylan wrote a song called All Along the Watchtower. We just did this morning Jimi Hendrix's version. Jimi Hendrix uh, kind of uh, gave that song a little life about six months after Bob Dylan wrote that song. Imagine that. You put out a song. You're Bob Dylan, first off. Pretty popular guy. You put out a song, and six months later, this kind of nobody who got popular at Woodstock at the time comes out with a song and completely blows your song away. I mean, nobody even knows this song is written by Bob Dylan anymore. It's just Jimi Hendrix, and it's on the Experience album. Raise your hand if you knew that song before this morning. Okay, I'm not the worst. Okay, appreciate it. I'm I'm glad somebody else has taste in music. Um, But here's what what Bob Dylan says about Hendrix's cover. He says, I liked Jimi Hendrix's record, uh, record of this. And ever since he died, I've been doing it that way. And it's strange how, how when I sing it, I always feel like it's a tribute to him in some kind of way. Here's the guy that wrote the song and saying, this guy did it better than me, though. And I can't help but think in this situation, in this moment, when we're talking about this song or we're thinking about Guatemala and all that God is doing, if I'm going, I wonder if there's a better way. I wonder if we do things, but sometimes there's maybe a, a better way of doing it. This song uh, written by Bob is is kind of veiled in symbolism. You could probably listen to it a hundred times and you go, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. There's a lot of theories out there. There's some scripture actually used in this song from Isaiah. Uh, Some some 
uh, people will look deeper into it and say, oh, this is a, a Revelation-type song. This is one of the songs that brings out some of the end of the world. But the vast majority of the people who kind of look at the song, who I, I guess ha- have a brain and, and, you know, really just want to spend nothing but their time on dissecting the words of a guy from 1967, they basically say the song is about consumerism. And it's this conversation between a joker and a thief and how everybody in the world is about to take their stuff and all they want to do is consume and consume and consume and, and, and take over everything that they have. And so what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks in this summer playlist sermon series is we've been taking popular songs like this. We've been kind of looking at the overarching theme that they teach and we've been going back to the Bible and saying, okay, what does the Bible talk about this thing? And so in the lens of, of, of consumerism, in the lens of this mission trip and this moment that we all encountered on this mission trip where we're seeing a, a people group in this church who are going, I don't need this stuff. Like, I, I'm out to send everything I can to make disciples of all nations. I, I want to dive into a text and a sermon this morning that, truthfully, I, I preached to these same church planters in Guatemala. And so I want to start it off the same way I did with them. So students down front right here, uh, I gave them a piece of paper earlier this morning, and I told them to build me their best paper airplane. All right, so are you ready for a little competition? Are you awake? Good, fantastic. Thank you for literally responding to me and just looking at me. That's okay. <laughs> if you would all just stand over there for me really quick in a good, pretty, nice line, just that direction right over there with your paper airplane, we're going to have a little competition to see whose paper airplane flies the furthest. Are you ready? Man, that was weak sauce. Are you kidding me? Are you, re- are you awake? Wow. There we go. All right. On the count of three, can we get in like one line? Uh, you know, Skinner, you're hiding everybody. Like, you know, there we go. All right. On the count of three, crowd, you're going to help me out, count them down, because apparently they're still asleep. All right, here we go. One, two, three, throw. All right, who's this over here? Who's this? Greg Gleaton, give it up. There you go. Great. You guys can have a seat. I have no prize for you except for your pride. Good job. Gray can build the best paper airplane. There it is right there. Now, hopefully, uh, when you guys built that paper airplane, you had a little bit of strategy involved, right? I think I even saw one person YouTube a video because they're like, I think I asked all of them and pretty much everyone looked at me like, I have no idea how to build a paper airplane. And I'm like, what happened to your childhood? Like, Wow, but okay, sure. So you had some sort of strategy involved in making this paper airplane, correct? I mean, you didn't just ball it up and throw it, although some of you may have gone further if you did that. That was a dig. I'm sorry. I appreciate it. So uh, here's the deal. God has given each and every one of us a strategy. He's given the church a strategy. And so what we're going to dive into this morning is the best strategy in the world to not only live inside your purpose, but to function as God has called you to. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. We're going to get there in just a second. This strategy that he's given us is a strategy to make disciples. And I know you're going, oh yeah, that's, that's the thing that's going to free my life. And I'm going to tell you, yes. It is. And, and in just a few moments, I'll walk you through the Bible and show you why making disciples will give you a fuller life. So if you'll lean in with me and you just kind of go with an open mind, I'll show you how to have a better life, how to put down some of the things of this world and consumerism, consumerism and pick up the things of God and go, this is what a full life looks like. 
So Jesus begins modeling this idea of making disciples. Early on, what does he do? He, he goes out and he fishes for men, right? And he, he looks at them and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so he recruits these men and even women, and he says, you're going to make my disciples. You're, you're going to be my church. And so for a year and a half, he walks with them. And then we get to this passage in Luke chapter 10. Now, up to this point, Jesus has kind of modeled what it looks like to make disciples. He's modeled what it looks like to hang out, to do life together, to, to go into the bars and minister, to, to come out, to talk to people who he might not always should talk to in the eyes of the religious believers. And so in Luke chapter 10, what he's about to do is he's going to look at these leaders and he's going to say, hey, I've shown you what to do. Now, Go take these steps. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. If you'll stand with me in the, re in the honor of reading God's word. He says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You may be seated. So, as I mentioned, Jesus had been preparing these disciples. He'd been kind of tilling the soil of their heart. And then what he does is he puts them in groups, puts them in pairs, and says, hey, now go out, and the thing that I've been showing you how to do, now I want you to go do it. Now, we're not going to read this in the passage, but if you continue to look on in chapter 10, what it does is they actually come back from this moment and they report in to Jesus. Like, this, this is huge. That he, He's not just saying, all right, now go. I'm not going to give you any more lessons. Your life is over. Appreciate it. Thanks. Do what you do. No, no, no. He says, go, because the harvest is plentiful. It is ready. All we need is laborers. And before he sends them, what does he say? Pray earnestly. God, in that moment, shows them, pointing back to the very heart of all things, that if our heart and our prayer life isn't centered around the things of God, our actions and our life won't be centered around the things of God. Like, do you get that? Like, there's these moments where we, I, I think, we kind of go through, the moment, uh, go through the motions of Christianity, where we just go, oh yeah, I love God, but everything else comes into play. And then one day we wake up and we go, why isn't my relationship with God better than it is? Or, or, or why haven't I been leading people to Christ? Or why, why, why am I not seeing these fruits of the Spirit when you're in a Bible study and somebody goes over Galatians chapter 5? And I go, well, your actions aren't lining up because your heart wasn't getting in the right place. And this is exactly what Jesus is showing the disciples, that they've got to pray earnestly for the harvest. And it is ready and so he continues on. He comes back, they come back, and he, he teaches them what to do. And then in Matthew chapter 28, he gives us all this great commission. But specifically in that moment, he speaks to the disciples. He says, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you've been in church for any time, you've heard this passage over and 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 then even over again. And when you get to it, you're like, yeah, I hear you, Chris. Appreciate it. But what we need to remember is in this passage, when he says go, 
this is, is, a, is a verb that he's basically saying, as you go. This isn't some message where like, hey, if you aren't an active missionary flying overseas going to a different country, then the rest of this doesn't apply to you. No, he says, if you have prayed to receive Christ and you have accepted him and now follow with him as you go in your life, as you're a parent, as you're a coach, as you're doing all these things in your life, whatever that is, as you're a friend, as you're Netflixing on your couch, how are you going? How are you taking the gospel? How, how are you walking with Jesus? How are you making disciples? If you have received the calling of Christ to be a follower of Jesus, you have received the calling to go with the gospel. Now, this going with the gospel, we go, okay, I'm supposed to go with the gospel. What, what does that mean? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So anybody who says, God, I, I need you in my life, I repent, I turn, I put my faith in you, they will be saved. He continues, how then will they call on him, on Jesus, on the Lord, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Don't, don't get stuck on that word. I'll get back to that in a second. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We hear that passage. We go, Chris, you're doing a great job preaching. That's your job. We're all going to just sit here and do whatever we want. That'd be a bad Greek interpretation. So remember, this letter was originally written in Greek. So Paul's writing this, and it's the word evangelizo. Now, in the New Testament, uh, and by the way, I just butchered that translation because I don't speak Greek, but in the, in the New Testament, it's used like 157 times. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not talking about preaching in the way that you and I think about preaching. It's talking about simple proclamation. If I put a Pepsi and a Coke up here, and I ask Jay Gillis, which one he wants? Which one's the better one? You know what Jay Gillis is going to say to me? Coke. He's, he's never going to say Pepsi. Ever. Not going to happen. Right? It's going to be Coke, Jay. He's going to proclaim the truth that Coke is better than Pepsi. And if you like Pepsi, there's the door. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, though, he's going to kind of make a proclamation, an assertion on his behalf to say, Coke is better than Pepsi. He's not going to just say, you know, I prefer Coke over Pepsi. No, he's going to say it's better. And so when, when we see in the Bible that we are called to proclaim, we're called to preach the gospel, you know what we're doing? We're just making an assertion that this is the gospel. This is the truth. This is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And so he's not saying, hey, everybody go out there and get your masters of divinity and make sure you go get in a nice little comfy church job and get a good suit and tie or a nice little dress. Make sure it's very long, ladies, right? Because if it's too short, you're going to get in trouble. What he's saying is, you, Christian, are called to proclaim the gospel. Like every single one of us. In the way we hold ourselves, the way we do life, the way we lead employees, we are called to take the gospel. And as a church, our win is not when our staff and our leaders can proclaim the gospel. Our, our win is when we can all proclaim the gospel, is when we can train each other and build each other up to a place where we can proclaim the gospel to people in our families.
people in our workforce and other places. We have a tendency sometimes in leadership to, to go, hey, when someone isn't, when something isn't being done in our church, it's the people's fault, right? When you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, it's, it's your fault. I heard a, a leader one time say, Craig Rochelle, famous pastor, great leadership coach. He said, when your people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, it's because you haven't led them to do it. And so if you're in a place of leadership in this church or otherwise, if somebody underneath you isn't doing what they're, what they're supposed to do, it's because you haven't led them to do it. And so speaking about this church, if you're leading a community group, if you're preaching, if you're leading a song, if you're leading a, a team, if you're leading in any capacity, I'm calling you to, number one, go with the gospel, and then, number two, train your people how to do it. Like, we need to set the example. We need to be a people of God who recognize the calling that if we don't do this, as Paul says, how can they ever respond? Oh, the rocks will cry out. Yes, the rocks will declare in Psalms that there is a God. But that is not a salvific call, meaning that is not a, a declaration when you read that psalm by David. That is not necessarily a declaration that will save them. It may point them ultimately to God, but they don't know the gospel. It doesn't call them on their sin, which, by the way, if, if you don't recognize your sin, you have no need for a Savior. And so we have to, have to, ha have to, church, proclaim the gospel that all people are fallen from God. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus came to redeem them. If they'll repent and believe and put their faith in Jesus, they will be saved. Our first step in the strategy of, of building a healthy church, which I, I hope and pray that if you sit in this room, you, your hope is to build a healthy church, is building a foundational life of evangelism. You know why churches don't grow? It's because they don't evangelize. I'm not talking, you know, there, there, there's, there's cross-membership growth, right? One church gets hot on one side of the city, and so other Christians begin to flock to that. Pastors don't lie up at night going, how do I steal other Christians? Right? At least I hope they don't. I don't. I, I, I lie awake at night going, how can I have an interaction with somebody leading Jesus today? How, how can I lead some of my leaders to be able to see that, man, the workplace that they're in, the environment they're in, the harvest is plentiful. Like, all they got to do is say yes and go, and I promise you, lives will be changed. Lives will be changed. And our church may grow. Other churches in our community may grow. By you stepping up at your job, and presenting the gospel, you may encourage that other employee who's just been sheepish about it, right? They've been going, I love Jesus, but I don't know. And in the moment that they hear Jesus come out of your lips, you may have encouraged them to take the gospel to somebody else. Like, it's just this multiplication thing that happens. I've seen it happen. When I was a mechanic at a dealership, the simple move of putting on Christian radio over country radio started so many conversations. And there's nothing wrong with country music, don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is, but the fact that while I'm changing oil on a car and I hate my job and I don't make enough money, and I have Chris Tomlin's How Great Is Our God, and someone maybe even hears me sing it while I'm doing that, they go, why are you singing that junk? 
Well, I'm glad you asked, brother. Appreciate that. Right? That's all it takes. It's just a simple little thing. Now, that simple little thing is going to line up with something else. If your life isn't lined up with the words that you declare, the message no longer matters. Right? Like if I turn around and cuss out every customer constantly and I'm always a grump and nobody likes me, oh, but Jesus is in my heart. They don't care. Right? I mean, you don't care. I was at Chick-fil-A the other day, and I know I'm cra- you know, bashing Christian chicken, but it's, it's, it's few, <laughs> few and far between. This happens. I pull into the line, I order my food, and this one person who's taking my food, they're just like, yeah, what do you have next? What do you have next? And I'm like, am I McDonald's? What is this? What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, is it really your pleasure right now? <laughs> and it's the same thing, I think, in our Christian walks. Like, we can declare that we love Jesus, but there needs to be something that continues to move in our, our, our foundational life of evangelism begins with our actions and our, our body. It's not just our words. So what are the fruits of evangelism? How, how does this tie back into us kind of walking in the way that God has called us to do and maybe putting down some consumerism and some things of this world and beginning to focus on what God has called us to do? Well, in Acts chapter 2, Peter responding to the call of Jesus to go make disciples, goes and preaches this killer message. And it's not because he's amazing, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes down in that moment and thousands of people give their life to Jesus. And here are the fruits from that moment. Acts 2, 42. It says, and they, that is these people who just gave their life to Jesus, thousands of them, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It says, And awe came upon every single soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. You see in this community aspect, settle in right here. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That type of community is what every single person in this world really desires. I mean, a community that when you stumble, somebody is there to pick you up. And there's not a lot of judgmental questions coming with that. Right? They're just saying, look, I, I know you fell. It's cool. Let's, let's pick ourselves up. Let's get back moving. And they were devoted to each other and to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I want to be that kind of friend. I, I want to be the kind of friend that, sure, I, I may ask some hard questions to my friends at times, but they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's not a judgmental question. It's a, hey, you made this proclamation. How can I help you walk in that? Right? I mean, we, we get, sports teams get it. Like some of you down front students, you, you play sports, and when somebody's loafing in a drill, you're going to just let them loaf? No. What's the best, the best teams, the championship teams, you know what they do? That stud player gets up and says, hey, we don't loaf. Let's do this. Let's move forward. It's not when the coach says, all right, guys, let's get it going. It's when the, the player goes, hey, don't loaf. Let's go. Because we're all going towards the same thing. And every single one of us needs people in our life to do that. So, so how do we do that? Number one, you have to have the desire, period. 
We can get up here and preach, and I can be inspirational and all the things, but you have to have the desire. You have to recognize that the harvest is plentiful. And you're a laborer. So don't be few. Be many. Like, get up and go. And recruit some people to go with you. You have to have the desire. The second thing, you have to take intentional steps. Evangelism will not happen naturally. I know some of you in the room are very charismatic. You're outgoing, Chris Bailey. You can talk to anybody. But then there are others of you in the room who don't even want to talk to the wall. I get it. God made us all uniquely us. He didn't say, go with the gospel if you're extroverted. He said, go with the gospel. And so you need to figure out what evangelism looks like for you. You're probably, if you're an introvert and you don't really like talking to people, you're not the corner street preacher, most likely, right? You're not the guy who's like, repent, turn. It's probably not who you are. But maybe you're the person who can build a relationship with somebody over time. Maybe you're the, the person who can serve, and through serving, you build some connections and begin to have a little small conversation with somebody. It may take you a while to get some trust. You've got to keep that in mind, you extroverts, right? When you're trying to get somebody outside of the walls and, like, preach the gospel to them, it may take a little more than coffee for you to build their trust. I have that problem, right? Because I'm an extrovert, and I think you should all just trust me. Uh, but sometimes I have to earn your trust. And I have to be able to like, hey, I do have your best interest at heart, I promise. And I have to show that over time. We have to take intentional steps. How do we do that? We have to prepare our heart and mind. Romans 12 says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to have the word washed over us. We need to constantly be pointing back to God. So we need to prepare our heart and mind. We say quiet times are important a lot around here. And I think... Sometimes we think they're important just because it's a to-do list, but I, wanna, I want you to imagine for a second that somebody walks up to you and genuinely asks, I want to know Jesus. How do I do it? Do you know how to answer the question? Do you know how to lead someone to Jesus? Yeah. I was literally about to say, the answer is not, well, let's go talk to my pastor. I would be more than overjoyed to speak with anybody about coming to Christ. But I think what God's telling you in Matthew 28 is you can do that for them. Like, you, you can lead them to Jesus, just as you were led to Jesus. And, and let me take some little, a little pressure off of you. It's not your words that ultimately matter. Your words don't give life. Jesus' words give life. The same breath that gave Adam life. Remember back to Genesis, what happened? He was created from the dirt, but he was just a body. What does it say that God did? Breathe. Ruah is the the Hebrew word. That same breath is the breath that we see in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If you want to lead somebody to Jesus, get the breath. Like, get it on you. Get that breath on you. You can quote that. Last one. I went way too long. First one is you have to have a desire. Second one, you have to take intentional steps. Third one, you got to seize the moment. I can't tell you how many times that I've walked away from a situation going, that was a door. I didn't even have to kick the door open that time. It was a wide open door, but I wasn't paying attention. 
my, my heart and my mind weren't prepared. And so I didn't walk through the door. And this is a proverbial door in case you're not following. This is that moment when someone was kind of leading me to a place to maybe give my testimony or point them to Jesus. And all I had to do was be paying attention and be ready. The desire had my mind, my mind, heart, and everything ready to go. But I was in another world. And so some of the things that I do now to try to be ready is remind myself. Walk into the grocery store, anybody can talk to you. And if you don't believe that, make a phone call as soon as you walk to anywhere and somebody's going to know you, right? Like it happens every time I get on the phone, oh, hey, right? And my wife is like, what, why did you call me? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I got to be ready at every moment. And, and, and so to, to, to wrap it all up, we as the church have been commissioned to make disciples. And when you will own that calling in your life, when, you, when you'll begin to respond and receive what he's called for you to do, in that moment, you will find a freedom unlike no other. You won't be worried about the stuff that you have. You won't be worried about what they say about this person. You won't be worried about this, that, or the other thing. All the things that we put on our plate, God is going to put at the center your mission to make disciples. And when you do that, your life will find purpose and meaning and everything else will revolve around it. It's like the sun. It's just going to orbit. Like it's just going to happen. So will you pray with me this morning to make that a priority in your life? Be careful now. When you do, God moves. Let's pray. Lord, I just, uh, I come to you this morning with confidence that this church, these people, that we will begin to take steps away from consumerism, away from the things of this world, and take step towards following after you. Uh, that first step, Lord, is repentance and faith. If there's anyone in this room this morning that hasn't put their faith in you, that haven't recognized the, the full weight of their sin, and the sin is ultimately death, and God, that you sent your son to die on the cross so that we could be redeemed, we could be raised to walk in a new life. God, I pray that you'll convict them, you'll draw their hearts to you this morning, that you'll, you'll move them from death to life today. God, the second step from, from us is once we've received that calling is to begin to prepare our hearts and minds so that we can own the story and own the calling to go with the gospel. Just as many of us went to, to Guatemala just a few days ago, Lord, I pray that these small trips that we take are less about the volcano hikes and the, I, don't know, I guess, different food that we eat, and more about the opportunity to share your name and your fame with those around the world. God, may you be big in this church and in our lives. May we become less so that you'll become more. God, will you be the foundation that we walk on in every single step of our lives? We trust in you through all storms, all hills, all valleys. We lean on you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.